0: This is an Equity Bates Media podcast.
1: Equity Minds.
0: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity.
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in forty-five minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividends, so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro?
2: I'm very good, Bryce. We are a few weeks into our self-isolation here, and the podcast is rolling, and we've got another very exciting guest today. So. I'm thinking we might, we might just be able to stay like this. The the role that we're <laughs> on at the moment, we may never need, need to leave our house again.
1: Well, yeah, it sounds like you're getting pretty comfortable underneath the blanket. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, also very excited for this one. I've uh, been hanging out for this interview for a while now. May as well jump straight into it. Today, we have our Founder and Chief Investment Officer of Cambria Investment Management. He looks after Cambria's ETFs and private investment funds. He graduated from University of Virginia with a double major in engineering science and biology and runs a popular share market and investing blog. Without further ado, it is our pleasure to introduce Meb Faber to the show. Meb, thanks for joining us.
2: Good to be here, guys. Now, Meb, before we get stuck into the interview, we always like to start these with a bit of a game. We call the game Overrated or Underrated where we throw out different themes, indexes, or ideas that are big in the investing world, and we ask you if they're overrated or underrated, just to get a bit of a sense of what you're thinking and what you're feeling at the moment as an investor. So are you up for playing?
0: Let's do it. I'm going to caveat this and say that my responses are probably going to be longer than one word, but uh, I'm game.
2: That's great. We love a bit of detail and a bit of explanation. It uh, definitely helps us understand your mind frame and your thinking. So we'll get stuck in and we'll start pretty broad. Overrated or underrated? The S&P 500 index.
0: Overrated for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into.
1: All right. Overrated or underrated? Individual stock picking?
0: Oh, man. It's both, really. Uh, but I will go with Overrated.
2: I think that's the first time we've had a both answer on the show, so I like it. <laughs> you're breaking new your ground here.
0: It's, it's both for different reasons, but uh, we got to we got to move this along. I, I can't uh, I can't spend the whole time on uh, on this, this one answer. So yeah, to yeah, be yeah. Short.
2: <laughs> I'm sure we'll get we'll get into a bit of that detail a bit further in the, into the interview. Overrated or underrated small caps?
0: Underrated.
1: Overrated or underrated private equity?
2: Oh, overrated. It's also a
0: both, but overrated. I think the part is, oh, there's so many, this is so hard for me because there's so many there's uh, overrated underrated right now there's overrated underrated depending on how you implement it, but I'm going to go broadly overrated.
2: next one is highly controversial one in some of the interviews we've had overrated or underrated bitcoin
0: overrated
2: but just by a smidge. <laughs> a smidge. Because <laughs> nice. I have to choose. That's it. That's it. We're putting you on the spot here. We're not taking fairly rated as an answer. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: To close it out, overrated or underrated the economic impact of COVID-19 on the U.S. economy?
2: Overrated. That's a bit of hope for people in some trying times at the moment. And so,
0: so many of these things are, are relative to the base case. Right. It's, it's overrated or underrated relative to, in my mind, what the current thinking is. And so uh, in some cases, anyway, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> I told you it was hard for me. Let's go. Let's move on.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Meb, moving on to your personal background, we always like to know the story of people's first investments. We find there's sometimes a good story or there's a good lesson that came out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment?
0: You know, um, it depends what you characterize it as. If you look back, I mean, I I certainly got suspended in school for uh, being the young entrepreneur. Most most people would have been selling probably sticks of gum. I got in trouble for selling stink bombs. I remember that. So an investment in distribution. But also as far as traditional investments, you know, I certainly was interested in stocks and companies from an early age. and, And I can certainly remember... Being in high school and even younger, investing on my own, you know, and, and very trivial amounts. And then, even going further back, I actually found an old postcard I had mailed my father at one point from camp, talking about how I thought we should buy some shares of Disney. And there's another another two stock or two. I can't remember what they are, but I, I need to frame it because I'm pretty sure that if I had just bought those stocks and, and went away and, and had no investment career whatsoever, I'd probably be far better off. <laughs> and in the old Buffett sort of coffee can portfolio manner, uh, would have done much better. There's a few of those. The one, first one I can remember buying personally would have been E-Trade on E-Trade as a brokerage, a little meta, and there's soon to be no more. But a typical answer for me, about four different answers to your simple question.
1: <laughs> I mean, Jay, imagine if you'd bought Disney all those years ago, you'd be cruising at the moment. Yeah. So you majored in biology, Meb, but ended up in finance and markets. How did that happen?
0: You know, like for most, it's a pretty convoluted path that seems obvious and well-intentioned, now but if you look back there's probably a lot of just youthful decisions that weren't very well thought out you know i I was planning on going back for a phd study genetics had some family members that had gone that route and said hey you probably want to take some time off between undergrad grad school make a little money have some fun because it's a long slog you know five six years academic life and I graduated during my favorite bubble, the late 90s internet and biotech bubble in investing, and had decided to go work for a biotech mutual fund while taking grad school at night, you know, as well. And this was kind of the implosion of both of those sectors for the next two to three years. My decision to go back to school, the path sort of widened, and uh, one year became three, which became five. And kept gravitating more and more towards the investment part of the world and, and less and less towards traditional and science. I was always terrible at it anyway. I'd go into the lab, spill viruses everywhere. It was never meant for a career in academia, but uh, you could say the, the hobby has become the career and
2: vice versa. So, Meb, you run Cambria Investment Management and we're keen to get into some of your work there. But before we do, do you have a personal investment philosophy?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's it's summed up. I wrote about this in a recent piece, you know, disclosing kind of how I invest my money. And I've been doing this for years. It's, I think, nice to see professional investors actually disclose, one, because many professional investors actually don't invest in their own funds, which is a surprise to many people. But uh, mutual funds in the U.S. is actually a majority. So it's good from a transparency standpoint, but also a skin in the game. But, you know, I talked about it and I laid out the thinking behind exactly how I invested. And I said, look, I'm going to channel John Bogle, you know, the late Vanguard founder who said something along the lines of he was talking about indexing, of course. And he said, you know, are there investment approaches that are better? Sure. But there's there's infinite worse. And so when you think about philosophy of investing, there's plenty of ways to do it just fine. But there's sort of infinite ways to do it really poorly. And the ways to do it just fine for me is based on what I wrote about in this article, honestly, concepts that have been around for two thousand years. And this, there's an old quote and we wrote about this in one of our books called uh, Global Loss allocation, which is free to download on our website, where it looks at the Talmud advice it talks about in there and it says, Let each man invest a third of his invest his money equally in land, business, and the third keep in reserve. And that portfolio actually looks a lot like what my actual portfolio is. But, you know, to me, it's the analogy I often give is it's a lot like baking, where as long as you have the main ingredients for chocolate chip cookies, it doesn't matter the exact percentages. So in my mind, as long as you have some global stocks, as long as you have some global bonds, and as long as you have some global real assets, and that category is things like housing, Real estate, farmland, et cetera. For you guys, certainly uh, commodity producing companies, as long as you have some, you know, you're doing the right sort of path in my mind. And then a step further, you know, my, my two big pillars beyond that are value investing, which is why you tripped me up earlier at the SP, and then also trend following. And so, uh, and it's close cousin momentum. So it's, it's a combination of all those categories. But if you were to tell me, hey, look, somebody's got a portfolio that's half global stocks and half bonds and they rebounce it once a year, God bless them. Good for them. I'm totally fine with that. But I could probably spend the next five hours telling you about terrible investing approaches and ways not to do it. But for me and for most people, it's all about finding what works for you personally that lets you uh, sleep at night. And sleep at night, once again, hasn't, <laughs> hasn't been something that has really bothered people for the past decade, but 20 2020
1: has brought that uh, back into the focus uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. We had an interview only a matter of days ago with an ex-hedge fund manager over in London and his approach was essentially very similar saying that, you know, the only portfolio that the everyday investor really needs is an index tracker for, for world stocks and an allocation of bonds depending on your risk appetite. So yeah, it, it's interesting.
0: You know, so a good, a good example of that would be the global market portfolio. If you just went out and bought the entire world of public assets, it actually looks pretty close to a 50 50 portfolio of stocks and bonds. And of that, you know, most of it is, is heavier weighted towards the US, but being the largest economy and market cap, it's not surprising. But that's a pretty darn good portfolio, and it's actually pretty hard to beat. Mm-hmm. You know, you end up with a pretty nice, and that's actually. Going back to how Bogle invested, you know, he put roughly half stocks and bonds, although his was very specific to the U.S. market. But, yeah, I I think that's perfectly fine advice, you know, with the caveat to implementing in a low-cost manner, doing it tax-efficient. And and the biggest one, not mucking around with it and and letting your emotions and and behavioral problems ruin the, the very simple plan. Yeah.
1: We'll unpack a bit of that in a moment, but let's move to Cambria Investment Management, which you you founded and your CIO for part of Cambria's offer is, I think on last count, 11 ETFs. Correct Correct me if I'm wrong. A few interesting ones in there. What has been the most enjoyable ETF for you to create and perhaps why, why is that?
0: So, you know, when we're creating funds, we're pretty different. And, you know, the First of all, let's take a step back and say there's never been a better time to be an investor. For most of citizens of the world, you can find an online brokerage account that charges no commissions. Certain pockets, surely, that that, that hasn't penetrated, but the trends are clear. The costs are going down. Cost of funds in the U.S., you can buy the aforementioned global market portfolio stocks and bonds for about 0.05%, which is essentially free at this point. If you include short lending, it's already free if not paying you to own it. So it's a pretty awesome time to to be an investor. And so, you know, my goal of my company is not to create, there's over 10,000 funds in the U.S., so it's not to create another me-too fund, but rather we want to create funds that either don't exist or we think we can do a lot better or cheaper. And so in that category, under that umbrella, you know, to to deviate from these very, very low-cost indices the goal is to be really weird and different because if you're just a little bit weird and different, there's no point. You're not going to make up, uh, you're not gonna be able to notice, uh, the difference from the index, which is at zero cost and for all definitions of the commodity. So for me, you look at a lot of our funds and say, wow, that's a pretty odd bird, you know? And so, but that's part of it. The fun to me is to try to convince people, you know, an interesting line of thinking and I'll give you a good example is which is oddly enough now our largest fund. You know, We did an article a few years ago talking about risks and said for most industries in the world, people think about risks and they think about it somewhat correctly. So for example, most people will buy house insurance or car insurance or life insurance, all these ideas of controlling your risks of your house burning down are certainly seen sensible and everyone understands it. Same thing with companies. A company that's an airline company will probably hedge the cost of fuel or a cereal maker will hedge the cost of wheat. And only when it gets into in the investing world do people not think in those terms. And so we launched a fund that's called a, a tail risk fund, but talked specifically to people involved in the investment asset management business and said, you can make an argument that if you're involved in the asset management business, or say you're a financial planner, you're not just one-times leverage the stock market by owning stocks in your own personal portfolio. You're really about four-times leverage, Because let's say you work for a company like Morgan Stanley and you're a financial advisor. Well, you own stocks in your personal portfolio, your retirement account, your clients own stocks and portfolios, and so your revenue and earnings is very directly in line with how stocks are doing because it's fee-based. On top of that, clients are known to panic when times get really bad. On top of that, that also happens typically during a recession or a contraction. And this is all very real time, what's going on this year in 2020. And so all these things happen at once, typically, uh, bear market recession, revenues going down. And on top of that, the final one being, if you don't own your own company, you're exposed to the prospects of actually losing your job too. So you're human capital. So it's like five times leverage in the stock market. And so you can make the argument that a financial planner should actually know, own no U- U.S. stocks, is the example I'm giving, and not only not own them, but hedge them the same way that an airline company would hedge fuel or that uh, you'd buy insurance on your house burning down. And so we launched a tail risk fund, which brought, puts on the stock market. And then we said, look, this, this may or may not be a long-term holding for people. It may be something you want to hold, in particular, tactically, if you think stocks are expensive, or it's been a nice long run in the US market. We certainly uh, didn't predict that it would happen in the first quarter of 2020. But it's a weird enough fund that where we looked around the landscape and said, man, the, the choices out there are fairly terrible. They're either really expensive, or they're complicated, or you know, they're like triple leveraged ETNs. It's just a mess. And so we said, let's design a simple product. And, and one of the criteria that I had, didn't mention earlier when I said we launched our own funds is it has to be something I want to put my own money into. So you're not going to see us launch funds that, that I'm not interested in. And so all that criteria came together. We launched this fund and it's been interesting is the wrong word because it's, it's hard to say something is interesting when you're talking about a pandemic or a bear, a bear market, but it's been useful to see it play out in real time in the way that it was expected to, to help. And so a lot of people have, have certainly responded to us and said, hey, um, you know, this is this has been a pretty interesting product that's similar to things that uh, had already been listed. So that's up there. That's a, that's a pretty weird and different one.
2: Yeah, I imagine a lot of people would have been happy to be hedging that sort of unknown risk as as 2020 really kicked off.
0: You gotta remember though too is that people also hate something that's losing on their on their portfolio for a long time. It's it's like when you think about insurance, obviously no one really cares about insurance costs, but and particularly when the event happens, but imagine being a financial advisor and every quarterly review your client says, Why do we own this fund? Every quarter it's down. I just it's, it doesn't make any sense. And this fund is interesting because, you know, I'm a quant. We spend all day quantifying portfolios and theory and rules and ideas and best ways to build a portfolio. And this fund or concept actually doesn't fall under what I would consider to be necessarily arithmetically the most optimal portfolio, but rather it falls under the category of behavioral, where if it helps you behave better with the rest of your portfolio and balances things out in a way that when the world was going crazy last month, and at least you could see something that was working. If that helps you get to the finish line, then it's worth its weight in gold, whether or not mathematically, it's necessarily uh, the most optimal addition.
2: Now, uh, as Bryce said, there's a lot of funds that you run, and you you sort of touched on the fact that they're not the usual S&P 500 index trackers and stuff like that. You've got a mix of shareholder yield value momentum combinations of value and momentum and a bunch of other strategies so we're we're going to put you on the spot here and we're going to say if you gave yourself a 20-year time horizon and we only allowed you to invest in one of these which one would you be looking at and why is that
0: so there's going to be two depending on how your question is actually um, formed so my wife would be laughing right now because you don't ever get a straight answer with me. <laughs> so the first is if, if you're looking for pure, absolute return of what I think will have the highest compounded return over the next 10 to 20 years, for me, that's almost universally looking at where are stocks or businesses, you know, the cheapest globally and value, particularly deep value, has been a fantastic strategy for well over the past 100 years going back to the time of, of Ben Graham and, and, and even before. and as you survey the world today, you know you came into this year into this decade where the US stock market has stumped everything else for the past 10 years. And that led to a point where the U.S. stock market was expensive. For reference, we can talk about a 10-year price-to-earnings ratio. We call it the Shiller CAPE ratio, but, but really any valuation metric tends to say the same thing, where U.S. stocks, if you look at global valuations over time, have been around 17. And in a low-inflationary environment, you could say maybe the multiple could be 21. Well, U.S. stocks entered the year around 32 or 33. Uh, The foreign developed, so most of the rest of the world, was down around 22. Emerging was down around, I think, 15 or 16. And the cheapest bucket of countries was down around 12. And so then you had Q1 happen. And so the U.S. went from 33 to around 25 today. It had a low, I think, of around 22. Foreign developed went from 22 to probably 17. Foreign emerging went from 15 or 16 to 12. And the cheapest bucket went from 12, I think, to high single digits. And so you have a scenario where, look, the U.S. is still kind of expensive. It's not terrible. You can plug in a very simple equation to come up with forecasts for future stock returns. It's just starting dividend yield, dividend growth, and change in valuation. And historically, that gets you to the high single digits in uh, global equities over the past 100 years. The U.S., we think, will probably do low to, to mid single digits at this point. Coming into the year, we said it was you know, only probably a, a percent or two. But the good news is the rest of the world is, is pretty reasonable. I think Australia is right in the middle of the pack. But emerging markets, and in particular, a value tilt in any of these markets, small cap value in the U.S., but in particular emerging markets, if you had to go develop versus emerging, I would pick emerging markets, small cap value. We have a fund that does that. Or if you say I'm geography agnostic as as developed versus emerging, we have another fund that says, let's just pick the 12 cheapest stock markets in the world. And then that gets you to the really nasty beat up stuff. You know, It gets you into Russia and Brazil and Greece and Turkey. I think both of those will get you to double digit returns over the next 10 to 20 years. So if you can close your eyes, hold your nose. Cross your fingers, perhaps, for the next decade. I think they should vastly outperform the same way they did in the early 2000s. Now, that's part one of the answer. But the B, part two of the answer is that if it had to be my entire portfolio and a compounded return wasn't the goal, but rather simply survival to build the most robust portfolio that, let's say I have, and I don't, but let's say I had $100 million and didn't care about compounding, then I would want something that had some breadth, but also would fall under this trend following sort of category where, you know, the goal, the whole biggest compliment you can give anyone in our world of investing, but not just investing also entrepreneurship and really any facet of life is that you survived and live to to bet another day. And so investing, avoiding these 50, 80, 90% drawdowns uh, keeps you in the game. And so we have a fund that, uh, Is what we call a global momentum and trend following strategy fund. That it can be highly concentrated in uh, in markets that are that are have good momentum, but it's only long if they are above their long-term trend. And so, a good example would be this year. You know, coming into the year, markets many were hitting all-time highs, and then very quickly transitioned to fair markets in in many sectors and countries went down thirty, fifty, seventy, eighty percent. And a trend exposure cuts your risk on sort of exposure pretty quickly. That fund is, I think, almost entirely in bonds currently. And so it's it's a little different perspective based on your goals. If you wanna outright, hey, I'm I'm looking to compound my face off, then it's the really cheap stocks around the world. If it's I want to survive and, and protect
1: what I have, then it's uh, then it's a momentum and trend approach. That's interesting gonna add them to to the watch list. I guess to follow that, Meb, if we were to change the time horizon to to five years, would the answers be any different?
0: No. And an interesting caveat on the valuation stuff is that, you know, you're you're reaching some pretty big spreads that you haven't seen in a really long time. A good example is is the rest of the world and emerging markets relative coming into the year to the U.S. We did an article called The Biggest Valuation Spread in 40 Years, where it was a pretty big opportunity where coming out of the financial crisis, the U.S. and the rest of the world trading at pretty similar valuations. The big difference was U.S., because of the monster run, had huge multiple expansion while the rest of the world didn't. And you'd really have to go back 40 years uh, to see that same sort of spread. But it was in the reverse, where the U.S. was cheap in the nineteen eighties and the rest of the world was really expensive, with the specific case of Japan, which was the largest stock market in the world at the time and hit a valuation cape ratio P of of almost hundred. And so, you know, these things have a way of oscillating and, and going from extreme to to fear and and vice versa. So the problem with the valuation side is that, you know, it's a blunt tool that plays out over years and decades not weeks months and quarters as much as we wanted to Uh, this year is a good example where uh value hasn't helped at least in q1 seems to be doing great in q2 (laughs) as short as we are in it but you know it's something that it's a bet you you need some time to to let it marinate in
1: season so meb let's talk about getting rich slow in one of your latest podcasts you mentioned a simple formula, savings plus investment plus time equals wealth. I mean, is it really as simple as that? Can you sort of explain what you mean by this?
0: Short answer is yes. The longer answer is that there's not a lot of people that believe this. so I'm I'm a bit in the minority that we spend all of our time on our podcast. I mean, hell man, I've written 2000 blog posts, half a dozen books, have dozens of white papers all about how specifically to implement and build great portfolios and invest. But the reality is all of that is trumped by the decision to save and invest in the first place. And you know, so many people get sort of focused so specifically two decimal points to the right of how to implement it when you know the, the really big muscle movement is putting it to work in the first place. And and going back to our old asset allocation book, we showed that most of the allocations, there's a dozen or two dozen in there, end up in the same place. Now, they may take different routes to get there, and they kind of zig and zag, but over time, you kind of end up in the in the same place. And so much bigger influence is when you start and how much you start to save. And so we walked through a few examples, and there's been many cases in history where you talk about the janitor that's somehow amassed a million-dollar portfolio because each week he puts in 20 bucks or 40 bucks and just buy stocks, going back to our Disney example. You know, if I'd done that when I was 10 years old, I could be living off Disney dividends and uh, not having to work for a living. And so, you know, the challenge of being a young person and a great quote from our buddy, Morgan Housley, he says, you know, everybody wants to be a billionaire, but most people want to be a millionaire so they can spend a million dollars. And that's the exact opposite of what it takes to become a millionaire. You know, people want to go to the club and pop bottles and drive Lamborghinis and go vacation in Byron Bay and buy fancy houses and everything, you know, that that goes along with it. And the flip side is literally the opposite is, is building wealth. And, you know, a simple equation is if you compound at 10% in, in 25 years, you 10 extra money and 50 years, you 100 extra money. And that's a pretty magical thing to happen. But many people who are 20 years old, who are thinking about going on spring break or a gap year and backpacking around Europe, that's probably not a good example right now, but going to a visa or whatever it was pre-pandemic and spending a $2,000, well, how many of them are say, you know what, I'm actually going to have some empathy with my 70-year-old self because I know if I put this $2,000 away and instead uh, went and stayed in a hostel, or maybe we just did a road trip uh, over to Perth or something, that $2,000 compounds into hundreds of thousands of dollars. And would my 70-year-old self value that a lot more than I would value this 2000 You know, that's, that's a tough call for most, most young people to make. So, you know, it's it's a long journey and it's a long path. And I just, I think people really struggle with that part. And so trying to automating it, trying to put it into a thing where you don't even have to think about it. You know, the old schooler just takes that out of your paychecks. You guys have all the superannuation funds and, and things that, uh, that do it, uh, I think in a very thoughtful way, but, but just putting it to work in the first place is I think a, a big first step.
2: Mm. Maybe one of the, uh, small silver linings out of the current situation we're in is that, young people will take the time to stop spending and get their savings sorted.
0: I doubt it. I doubt it.
2: So I guess the the question that follows from that is if we, you know, Bryce and I are still pretty early in our investing journey, We've we've got a long, long time horizon to invest. So once we get our savings sorted, we automate some of that putting money away in a brokerage account or in an investment account. What are some of the key pillars and considerations you would think people early in their investing journey with multiple decades ahead of them should really be thinking about if they're thinking about building wealth over the long term?
0: And let me make one more comment on the last part. Um, Please, listeners, take the advice to actually go to the backpack of Europe and go to Byron Bay surfing, <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and spend it. That's my advice. You know, so there's a couple of notes. One is that, in my opinion, you should treat your investing account or brokerage account all the same way you treat your savings, which means it's boring as hell. It's not fun. You just contribute money over a very long period and not muck around with it and and not even really spend any time on it. Most people, I think, should spend zero time on their investments. That having been said, once you get that set up or automated, I don't care if it's a target date fund, if it's an automated robo-advisor, you buy some of our ETFs. The biggest considerations are usually fees. It doesn't mean that high-fee funds aren't possible, that they can outperform and do better, but it's a very high bar. It just makes it harder. So certainly default to lower costs and lower tax funds and structures. Second, it's really easy to talk about the long term. It's a lot harder to actually do it. You know, so if you think about a good example, we talk about a lot. As the press loves to cherry pick examples in history and say, "Hey, if you just put ten grand in Berkshire Hathaway when Buffett uh, took over the company, it'd be worth two hundred million today." Or, or if you put in ten grand in, in Amazon, it'd be worth you know hundred whatever. But the problem is that people always neglect the past. And so at one point in Amazon, you would have lost 95% of your money. A couple other times you lose half. Charlie Munger famously says, if you can't sit in Berkshire and lose half your money, you have no business investing in stocks in the first place. But how many people are actually willing to do that? And uh, usually only psychopaths, you know, that they would have all their money in a stock and watch it go down 90%. So yeah, that's fine. So having it to where you set up a written investing plan, almost no one has it so that that plan accounts for any scenario i mean this year is a good example tweeting a bunch where my whole 401k just goes into and my son's university savings account just goes into emerging markets and foreign stocks and every month it just automatically deposits it and that's it and so markets that are going down and cheaper is a fantastic news that's a little backwards for most people but the quote we like to use is that investing is the only business that when things go on sale, everyone runs out of the store. And so in reality, if you're young, Q1 of 2020 is the best thing that's ever happened to you. You get to buy stocks for 30% off, or in some cases 50% off what they were three, three months ago. Imagine going to the, the store to pick up a, a new surfboard or a car or clothes and, and them saying, hey, just kidding, it's 30% off, you'd be elated. But, but investing people tend to take a different frame. So, so much of what we talk about, and we can get seriously academic and wonky, but so much of it is the, the big muscle movements is putting a plan into place that's robust and will get you to the finish line. A lot of young people in particular, but also older investors, you know, think they have a certain risk tolerance. Or can handle a certain allocation, say, yeah, I'm fine with all in in stock. And then the very real, visceral pain of losing 30, 40, 50, 60% is a heck of a lot different in real life than it is than it is on paper. So I'm trying to work through these. And the biggest one that we haven't mentioned is trying to have a respect for history and understanding of, of what's happened in the past with investments. And, uh, you know, my favorite investing book, Triumph for the Optimist, really lays out a great case study on what's happened in the past to at least understand that everything that's happened in Q1 has been totally normal and i think that's a shock for most people but it's business as usual in the stock market which historically been a, a pretty pretty wild ride
2: mm. that's great i love i love the title triumph of the optimist it's really what the uh what the share market has been in the last 100 years through depressions and recessions and bubbles just keeps grinding higher So getting rich rich slow, if we change the focus a bit and for people listening who want to get rich a little bit faster, I recently heard a quote that you said on one of your podcast episodes and you stated, that's what it takes to outperform over time, long periods of being weird, different and wrong. Can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Well, right now, we just, I mean, one of the most universally held beliefs worldwide is that stocks outperform bonds over time. I mean, I don't know anyone that probably doesn't believe that. But if you ask most investors how long they're willing to give an investment or an allocation or a fund manager or whatever, and can tolerate it underperforming, most people say two to three years, when in reality, anything can go decades of underperforming. Right now, we have a scenario in the US at the end of the quarter where US stocks have essentially the same performance as U.S. long-term bonds for the last 40 years. And that's astonishing. I mean, imagine saying you're not going to have any extra return from stocks over bonds for four decades. That's an investing lifetime for most people. So forget about months, quarter, years. You know, these things can play out over a much longer period. And so people really struggle with that. And so when people allocate to one of our funds, we're sitting chatting at a cocktail party and they say, Mev, how long? you know, should I give this or what's my time horizon? I used to say 10 years and now I say 20 and people laugh and they think I'm kidding and, but I'm, I'm being serious. And so looking at a lot of these trends and how they play out, it would be great if we could have immediate feedback like we would at the blackjack table or, or poker where, where, you know, uh, the score and the tally very quickly, but often the right bet plays out over, over a longer period. The good example is, you know, we were saying last year that U.S. stocks were expensive, but they weren't insane. We said they could certainly go higher, but the most likely scenario, and this doesn't get you invited back on CNBC much or Bloomberg, might get me invited back on y'all's podcast, we'll see, uh, is that you say the the most likely scenario, the probability is that there's a spectrum of future events, and the most likely scenario is muted long-term returns the next decade in the low single digits. but there could be a scenario where US stocks compound at minus 5% a year for the next 10, or they could even do 10% a year. And no one really wants to hear that. What they want to hear is certainty. They want to hear this is what's going to happen, particularly if it's contrarian with total conviction. And so the this, this struggle for a lot of this, you know, Triumph of the Optimist, by the way, the book lays out possibilities where a couple of stock markets straight up went to zero. You know, if you ing- invested in China or Russian markets in the 20th century, you lost all your money. But certain so, so other markets, like Austria, was basically a goose egg over the past hundred years. Now there's like tiny South Africa, were the best performers. And so the the whole goal is to come up with bets and spread them uh, to the point where you can make money. And so the the next step, when you when you're talking about the, the get rich and stay rich, get rich faster. At the end of it, you you got to own businesses. And, and that's really all stocks are over, over the long time. And so this is a very Buffett-centric view of the world where you're trying to own businesses that will endure, that are run well, that have great return on capital. And ideally, you're, you're investing in them when they're cheap. And And the last one, I think, is a hard discipline for many. It's easy to get caught up in the expensive countries, companies, sectors, because everything looks rosy. And traditionally, a lot of time, value investing means doing it when it's hard. You know, either investing in times of crisis or quote, you know, blood on the streets. You're often investing in things that can compound at double digit rates for a really long time.
1: So on the topic of getting rich a little quicker and outperformance for those who are looking to accelerate their returns using leverage, how do you think about leverage? Is it something that, you know, we should be thinking about at this time in our investing journey or perhaps later in the track or not at all.
0: First of all, you gotta remember that many investments are prepackaged leverage already. If you buy a house with a mortgage, that's leverage. If you're buying stocks like the S&P 500, that's leverage because most of the companies have debt on their balance sheet. So there's all already embedded leverage in life. The idea of leveraging it more is reasonable on paper. It's usually totally unreasonable in practice. You know, most people can't handle stocks at a non-leveraged level. God forbid, leveraging a more, or the same thing applies to a balanced allocation. And by the way, you'll get rich plenty fast with, with stocks at, at kind of normal leverage. And we talked about this in the paper. We said, I just don't think most people could handle it. Maybe you have, uh, you know, a spine of steel and totally logical, and and don't care if if your portfolio declines by fifty or seventy five percent regularly. But you also got to remember the problem with compounding is it works the bigger the hole you dig, the worse it gets because it's not an equal compounding to get out. You know, and the kink really happens around twenty percent. If you lose twenty percent, you need twenty five to get back to even. You lose fifty, you need a hundred percent to get back even. You lose 75%, you need 300% to get back to even. And so, trying to stay out of the big holes is, is a big plus. And the problem with leverage is you often often get in big holes pretty quick. And so, I think it's something that is seductive, but almost universally it's it's not needed. You know, if you look at someone like Buffett, if you compound at 20% per year, you become one of the richest people in the world eventually. Mm. And that's, that's just math, you know, it's arithmetic. And so a lot of people out there that are trying to go for 30, 50, hundred percent, you know, it's usually a recipe for the poor house than, uh, than anything else. Mm.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
2: That's a great thought. We just need to compound at 20% a year consistently, Bryce, and we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, turning to today's market and we're recording this on Thursday, the 9th of April in Australia. Wednesday the eighth in America. We've had a market that fell over thirty percent and is now back up over twenty percent. As you look at the the market and the economy now, what are some of the main things you're looking at and main things you're thinking about at a time like this?
0: There's a couple things. The first being is that most of the time markets spend being in somewhat of what I'd consider to be a normal zone valuation, you know, they they don't typically get to these big extremes. And so right now we have a scenario where the good news in stocks is most of the world is, is reasonably priced to downright cheap, screaming cheap. It's just so happens the US is not one of those countries. Um, there there's some pretty big spreads happening between traditional size and factors like value. Value has been a just garbage place to invest for the past decade in many parts of the world. And then on the flip side, you have some pretty crazy scenarios that if we were doing this podcast five, 10 years ago, people would probably think you're crazy if I said half the world has sovereign yields that are trading in uh, negative territory. I certainly didn't teach that in the history books when I was learning. And so you have the normal part, which is markets will remain extreme. You know, on the flip side, how do things look from the trend perspective? Well, certainly a lot of the world's assets are in downtrends. I mean, you name it, commodities, real estate, equities across the board are in pretty, I mean, oil are pretty nasty downtrends with the exception of fixed income. And so very much trend is screaming, you know, risk off. On the flip side, there's a handful of other indicators. I mean, this was one of the fastest, moves from all-time highs to bear market in the U.S., I think in history, and similarly for a lot of other countries too. And so things had moved pretty fast in the first quarter. And traditionally, and we wrote about this in our first book over a decade ago, when you have these really bad months of which we had certainly in the U.S., but around the world, future returns for the next 6-12 months tend to be pretty decent. And so we had basically a 20% downdraft in february march and so you have a little bit conflicting signals on one hand you know values is saying hey you should you should really be looking to a lot of pockets that are a pretty big opportunity on the other hand on the quant side trend is screaming risk off but you could have exposure to a bounce so uh, as usual there's no clear-cut answer and for me you know we talk about this is is what i do with all my money in the public markets is this concept, what I call the Trinity portfolio, which, you know, you could put all your money in a buy and hold allocation. We have one of the lowest costs asset allocation ETF in the, the U S and that's perfectly fine way to invest. But like we referred to in the beginning, the problem with buy and hold is that it often does poorly when everything else is doing poorly in the real world of the real economy, people losing their jobs. I mean, forget about how, uh, how bad, uh, This could turn out being whether it's a a recession or Great Depression. And so buy and hold doesn't really help hedge that world. On the flip side, trend following tends to do well during these periods of stress, uh, like the financial crisis, like the internet bubble, to an extent that's doing really well this year. But it has also its own struggle, which is it often underperforms markets when markets are romping and stomping like uh, they were for most, most of the 2000s, particularly in the U.S., and so, having this sort of yin yang combination portfolio where you have half and buy and hold and half and trend falling to me is a pretty robust concept of survival. Where, you know, we laid out in this piece investing in the time of coronavirus, where we said a month ago, and then things have changed, I think, quite a bit since then, but a month ago, you could very easily make a bull case or a bear case that are extremely different. The bull case would be what seems to be happening, knock on wood, where Most of the countries in the world take the insights from China and Korea and Italy and start to implement them, widespread testing, some of the medicines begin to work, vaccines are being developed, quarantining is happening, self-isolation, social distancing, hospitals aren't overrun, and and markets recover, and and in a couple months, this is seen as a short-term road bump, and and then we're moving on and forward. On the flip side, you could make the case, and still could, it's less likely now than I think it was a month ago, that uh, governments reacted with fiscal and monetary and ha- healthcare care policies, but they were too late, and the virus spread everywhere, and healthcare systems were overrun, treatments were developed but ineffective, vaccines were months away, you know, maybe the virus goes away this summer but comes roaring back in the fall, it mutates, hits everyone again, and you have essentially a year-long plus quarantine all around the world. You know, you can make a very real case for both of those scenarios, and the latter, of course, sounds scary, and much like the valuation discussion we were having earlier, who wants to place a bet on either of those outcomes being certain? I certainly don't. And if you do and you're wrong, you get carried out of the game. You know, you you get if you're at the poker table of life of investing, you go bust. And so you have no more chip stack to play with. And so for me, the concept is, look, I want to have half and buy and hold. So if markets romp back up, I participate in that and um, I have one foot in the very real world of the economy, but on trend following, which is universally either probably all risk often in sitting in cash and bonds or outright short, many of these markets like managed futures would be, you have protection to the downside or outright ability to profit if, if markets decline, if indeed there is a, is a downdraft. So the combination of those two at least for survival to me is, is what works, you know, for some others, it could just be half in stocks and bonds, you know, or, or something that's less risky, but bonds, I think the thing that for the next decade keeps me not up at night, cause I sleep fine, but, uh, but would keep me up at night. If I didn't was, you know, in a world of 0% interest rates or outright negative, will bonds be the same hedge? They have been historically to down markets for particularly equities, and I just don't know if that's true. We wrote a paper on this called Worried About the Market uh, that talks about some tail risk ideas in bonds and gold, and obviously tail risk have been good hedges, other things like foreign stocks and real estate commodities have not. I just don't know if they will be in the future. Anyway, really long-winded to answer your question, but to me to have that balance of two different theories of how this plays out, I think is important for me, but, but it, it applies to anything, not just a pandemic, but any scenario for the rest of our lives, uh, in my opinion.
1: So Med, before we move to our final three questions that we ask all of our guests, if we just take both of those scenarios that you've played out for us, Alec and I like to try and make some bold predictions at the start of each year as to how markets might perform or particular asset classes might perform over the year. And given that we made our predictions in January, we had no idea of what was coming. So all of them have probably been blown out the window. But just to close, if you were to make a a bold prediction about an asset class or where the markets might end or anything in particular for the remainder of 2020, what would it be? This
0: is a great question. There was some research that we did, an old article that looked into buying assets that were down a lot. So 60 80 90 percent from from highs which many markets are right now uh and, and closing your eyes holding your nose and buying those for the next three to five years traditionally has been a pretty good investing strategy i mean stuff right now it's like uranium a lot of agriculture commodities markets and equities i think is an interesting contrarian idea now these ideas You don't want to do more than like one person in your portfolio with the energy sector in the U S is down to like 3% of the S and P historically, I think it's around 12 and it's been as high as 25. So ideas like that, that are universally hated. Now, the way that I would apply it uh, being somewhat pragmatic is you know, wait till they enter an uptrend. So how 2020 plays out, I don't know, but there's probably an opportunity to, we had a couple of people on the podcast to talk about this with Howard Marks and Robert Nod to talk about this concept of rebalancing and over-rebalancing, meaning it's in a world today, like where if emerging markets, small caps have just been getting crushed and your target is 10%, well, maybe you rebalance instead of 10 to 12 or 15. And so I, I would think the one thing that I would bet on for the rest of 2020 is small cap value outperforming market cap. So the example would be small cap value in the US outperforming the S&P 500 for the rest of the year because it did a pretty, pretty big discount and then around the world as well.
2: Awesome. We'll track that prediction. We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes at your year, year end. <laughs> So, Meb, as, uh, as Bryce said, we like to finish the interview with the same three questions. And before we get stuck into that, we just want to say a massive thank you for coming on and sharing some of your knowledge and insight with us. It was great. And I'm sure all of our listeners will take a lot from it. Yeah, guys, looking forward to doing it in person one of these days. Yes. Yeah, oh. when we can all leave our house, we look forward to that as well. If people want more of your insights or to you know, hear your podcast or read some of your writing, where can they find more from you?
0: So my day job is at Cambria Funds or CambriaInvestments dot com. Uh, the blog is just MebFaber dot You can download most of our books and white papers for free there or on the Cambria site. And then uh, you can watch me pick fights on Twitter at MebFaber and the podcast too. Anywhere good podcasts are sold, Meb Faber Show.
2: Nice one. So we'll get stuck into these final three questions. Now, the first one is, do you have any must-read books? And these can be investing or otherwise.
0: You know, so this is a pet topic for us where we talk a lot about investing. So there's two links on our website. One is called something like the number one investing book, and the other is called Learning to Invest. And if you just type in my name and say Learning to Invest, we did a poll where we asked, I think in seven broad categories, people for their number one favorite read out of five or so titles. And so it has uh, the winners for each of those. And for most investors, if you haven't read all the the top books, that's like getting a master's in investing. And then you can go and read the five in each category. So they'll get you 35. Trying for the Optimist for me is my number one. It's not necessarily an intro book, but maybe probably a 201 or a 301 level level book, but it's also super expensive, but you can get the yearly downloads for free. It's called the Credit Suisse Global Investing Returns Yearbook. So if you Google that or go to your local library, you can pick up a copy of the book. Uh, that's, that's still my favorite.
2: That's one. We'll include links to the article and the book in our show notes. Second question, what is your go-to source for investing information?
0: You know, it's changed over the years. I struggle with it, you know, so much that we started a investment research company called the idea farm to help curate the, the flood of noise. You know, it's everything from investing academic white papers and books these days, this decade, it's, it's certainly been more podcasts, which have been such a phenomenal resource. I hope your listeners are listening to this at two or three times speed. Cause I talk so slow. But there's uh, there's just a wealth of free information out there that's pretty awesome. Podcasts are my new favorite for sure.
2: Nice one. And then final question: If you think back to your younger self, you know, either the entrepreneur getting suspended on from school, or you know, the young uh, investor thinking about whether or not to invest in Disney. If you think back to those days, what advice would you have for your younger self?
0: You know, um, we talked about this a little bit, but didn't get into it on, on the get rich ideas. I mean, almost if you look at the uh, Forbes 500, you know, people often think to the celebrities or athletes and entertainers for being the richest people in the world, but it's almost universally business people and people who have either started companies or been investors alongside of those. And so having the idea of investing in companies or businesses, obviously trying to start your own is fantastic. It's just, Super hard. Uh, you know, most businesses fail, most stocks fail. You know, you buy the, the odds are if you buy a stock, two thirds percent chance you lose to an index. About half that it has a zero percent rate of return, and about a quarter that it straight up goes to zero. So the odds aren't particularly in your favor. But if you can hold some, buy some, like the Disney example, and just put them away and let the, let the compounding do its work you know, it can be a pretty magical outcome. The same applies to starting a business or investing in friends or other people that do, but to really take the long view and enjoy the ride. Don't stress so much. (laughs) I think
1: that's a big one. Yeah, love that. We're all about the journey here. So it's a a great piece of advice to to finish on there, Meb. To echo Alex's comments, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a fun and fascinating conversation and there's some real practical pieces of information in there that I know our audience will be able to take away and hopefully put into action if we're prepared for the monotony of getting rich slow. So I hope it's all going well over in the States for you and we look forward to catching up at some point in the future.
0: Yeah. If you guys, uh, thanks so much. You find yourself in Los Angeles for listeners too. Come say
1: hello. <laughs> thanks, Meb.
2: Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.